Welcome to the Prophecy Club. Probably one of the biggest successes that the devil has had is destroying the Bible, splitting all the churches so that every church has a different version of the Bible that they're reading. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. But what we do have to do is find out which Bible is the correct version and then stick with it. Over the next several broadcasts, I'm going to be playing the audio of several DVDs that we've made over the years at Prophecy Club explaining the difference between the King James Version and the other versions. We're going to start with Adam Johnson, president of the Harvest Bible Institute and Theological Seminary, my opinion about the best. He's done over 150 conferences and 50 debates defending the King James Version. And we've been offering those three DVDs for a gift of $45. However, for this particular offer, we're offering all three of them for a gift of $35. Plus, we're going to give you free, throwing in extra, three other DVDs. Those other DVDs are New Age Bible Versions, 23 Years Later, Still One of the Best and Most Respected Works, and NIV or King James by Les Garrett. It was made in 1998, but he shows you specifically how the deity of Jesus has been removed from the Bibles and to include other religions as, quote, other paths to God. He documents that there are thousands of words, verses, and doctrines by which new versions will prepare the apostate churches of the last days to accept the religion and the mark of the beast. Then Michael Hoggard shows you how the modern translations of the Bible are actually tools that Satan is using to bring in a new religion and a new world order. You'll be amazed at the hidden truth behind the satanic logo on one of these Bibles. All four titles on six discs valued at $130, all available for a gift of just $35 at prophecyclub.com. It's the King James gift offer. $130 value for a gift of $35. Now let's go listen to Adam Johnson in King James or 400 Counterfeits. The question that's being posed today is uh, King James Version or 400 Counterfeits. Now, an interesting phenomenon has kind of occurred over the last 50 or 60 years where for the majority of the last 2,000 years of church history, Bibles that primarily came from one lineage of, of manuscripts, one source, have been used. And we'll talk more about that later, but what's very interesting about this in the last 50 or 60 years is we've become more and more apostate as both the nation and the people in general. What we have found is that people have started to make excuses. Those excuses have, have kind of been influenced by secular humanism, and that has now crept into a lot of modern so-called Bibles. And what this leads to is an issue that every Christian now has to deal with. Um, a lot of times if you listen to anybody who speaks on the subject, you'll hear this is, a, this is a, a rhetoric that's being put out there, that this is all the King James people. These are the old grandpas and the old people who hold on to these old ways that don't want you to have uh, you know, new Bibles and new scholarship. But you know, to me, there's, there's a big issue with this, and we're going to get to some of those issues in a moment. But this verse you're looking at, first, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, of course, you probably know by heart, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished to all good works. Now there's a purpose there then for the scripture. The scripture tells us what its own purpose is. It's kind of like Jesus saying, I came to save that which is uh, lost, which is also kind of hilarious because that verse is magically missing from new Bibles. Um, So Jesus in the NIV has no purpose for being here. My Jesus has a purpose for being here. We have to come to a point of understanding that two things that are different are not the same. 
That's as simple as it is. The whole argumentation, regardless of what side of this debate or debacle you may be in as far as Christendom is concerned, there's one paramount issue. Um, did God say or did not God say? Um, there's some acknowledgments here we're not going to go through right this moment because I want to get straight to the issues at, at, at hand. And these are some of the things that we're going to talk about that are extremely important to what we're seeing today. So in this kind of series, we're going to examine a few things over the next couple um, of hours. One would be why modern Christianity is falling short of God's expectations. So in other words, God has set a standard and we're not, we're not meeting that standard. Um, any of us sitting here or anybody who may be watching this in another format, uh, almost all of us have a story, for lack of better words, of, quote, the good old days, when we remember that grandpa or grandma or somebody down the line uh, remembered you know, churches being places that were full of glee, where the community met, where everybody went to. It was a social norm. It was a societal norm. It was a functional norm. And every aspect of our life was permeated by the, uh, the centricity of what God meant to us and what the church was to both them personally as a family under to itself in in a broader sense to the community. The trouble that we see is that as these new Bibles have come on the way, if you look at the time, the time when this falling away starts is when this falsehood starts to come into the church. So it creates a very big issue. We'll talk about that some more in a moment. Secondly, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about how secular humanism, the ideas of humanism, have influenced the church and become a part of its fundamental theology. Think about this for a second in terms, again, uh, that that you may be familiar with. If we were to go back, say, 200 years and we're talking to our great-grandparents, could you imagine the disgust that they would have at the church, quote-unquote, as we have it today at large, compared to what they would have accepted, done, and been okay with back then? Now, I'm not just talking about from a technological standpoint. I'm not talking about human advancement here. We're talking about a complete fundamental change from everything that identified them with their Christianity and their life. Uh, living a life that was separated unto God. Living a life that was generally moral and, and, and holy to some degree or another. Living a life that was centered and centric around the Bible. Now, you might have had different denominations, a few different theological beliefs, but generally speaking, these were all shared values. Since these new Bibles have come on the scene, they've torn that fabric away. And what you see no longer, even amongst most churches that are close, this fundamental idea of, quote, togetherness as a unit, as a body in Christ, is almost no longer existent. And when you look at what we ask the question, you know, why are the attendance at most real solid churches failing? Why are people uh, not going to hear the word of God anymore? Is because I don't believe, frankly, that they have the stomach for it anymore. Because if you go telling people truth, you'll see what happened to Jesus in the book of Mark. As soon as he stopped performing miracles and feeding everybody, everybody left him, uh, tend to be what happens in the church. As soon as you start feeding them truth, getting them away from this humanism and start preaching Bible, suddenly they ain't so happy with you. And you will find that's a commonality that if you preach Christ, Him crucified, risen, and coming again, you are going to have some enemies. And that shouldn't surprise us, unfortunately. He said it would happen to us, it happened to Him. Okay, so the third thing here will be the means by which this has happened. So how did it happen? We know the Bibles came on the scene. But what else influenced? What political things influenced the ideologies that are permeated in the churches? Could you imagine the church of three or 400 years ago relatively was centric, was non-political, was conservative, was God-fearing, was community-based, 
and had a lot of ideas built into it that played to the fundamental theologies of the Bible. We believed in in the standard definitions of marriage. We didn't um, idolize uh, sexual sin. And there were such things as, if I can be as blunt as saying this, as, quote, people in the closet, they stayed in that closet because it was not socially acceptable um, or morally acceptable to anybody, even those who were that way, to go flaunting that around in the community. It was just not an acceptable thing to do. Now the complete opposite has happened. And it's not that these things didn't exist all this time. It's that they haven't been acceptable until something in the church has fundamentally changed. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about why Christians are embracing these values. So it's one thing to say bad people have come into the church. Because, I mean, duh, that's happened. We've seen bad people come into churches all the time. And that that shouldn't surprise us that Satan would send agents to split godly churches. What should be surprising to us is that Christians as a whole have now accepted these values, integrated them into their own value systems, and now called this godliness, and now have reinterpreted by spiritualization the Bible in light of their own image, rather than in the image of God and the express person of Christ. So the infallibility of Scripture has now been questioned, where nobody questioned it before. Could you imagine, again, using the example that I I continue to use, if you went back and asked your grandparents, um, and you held out your, your Bible, is this the Bible? There would never be a question. You could ask an atheist if this was the Bible. There would never be a question. Nobody doubted the veracity of the Bible. You might have believed it. You might not have believed it. But at the end of the day, nobody doubted what it was. There was a standard. Now that we've removed that standard, um, societal views, values, and idealisms have now crept in. And Christians are unfortunately just as guilty as every other group as promulgating these excuses and lies as any secular atheist is. So we're going to deal with that. And we're also going to talk about why many pastors and leaders are out of touch with the power of the gospel, which uh, is very simply because you start, you know, trying to go to fight. You're going to go sword fight with a rubber sword. Don't work very well. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, This breaks the question. What is the definitive version of the Bible? Now, Mark 8.38, right there for you, it says, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his fathers with the holy angels. So this should tell us that there's an expectation. And as you notice, you'll notice a theme as we go through these slides each day, that what I'm going to show you are scriptures that tell us not just what the Bible is, but more specifically what its purpose is, or what its writers, of course, writer being God, what its purpose is. And there's a issue that comes up, this is it. Christianity fails short of God's expectations for a number of reasons, but this is the main one. The issues of modern and postmodern Christianity have been marked by one historical event, which is the rejection of the authorized version, and the received text is the text basis, the Greek text basis, uh, for historical biblical translation. Quick example. If you were to take all the Bibles from essentially the beginning of the church age in the book of Acts, from the time Paul leaves Antioch in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, where the disciples were first called Christians, all the way to the fairly modern times, and around the 1500s where the Protestant Reformation occurs, primarily one set of text is used. Now, there's different languages, different translations, but to to make a complicated issue very thin and narrow, they all come down, they're distilled into a Greek text, 
what we now call the Textus Receptus, the received text, that have commonly been used for all those translations, for Luther's translation, which started the Reformation, for uh, Tyndale's translation, Luther's translation, of course, coming from Erasmus. Erasmus is building on uh, uh, Bezos and Elsevier's. There's all kinds of documentation. We'll get to that later tomorrow. But the point is they all have been distilled and they've all been commonly accepted. And here's the point. They were all used, actually for real used by the church church to deliver to those churches throughout time Bibles in their language. Now, here's why that's important. After the King James Bible, with very few exceptions, no Bible has ever used that received lineage of text anymore. And the ones that cling that they do, for instance, the New King James Version, which tells you it's just updating words, but in over 1,600 places actually replaces the underlying Textus Receptus text, uh, text with the modern critical text, which is completely different and uses a completely different Hebrew base, they're not the same. So there's a bait and switch being played on the church, and without even thinking through the issue, the church has wholesale accepted it under three guises. Easier readability, easier understanding, and easier revelation. Now we're going to show that all three of those things are a lie here pretty soon, but I want to start with one that's kind of uh, familiar. A lot of people may have seen this before if you've ever read Dr. Jones's book on the subject. Uh, he's a very popular writer. You can find some of his videos online and you'll hear him say this. Uh, in the King James Bible, Isaiah 14, 15, uh, 14, 12 and 15 reads, How thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell. Now the NIV pens this, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn, but you've been brought down to the grave. Those two things do not say the same thing. Now, regardless of what anybody's point of view is about who these people are, some people believe Lucifer is the king of Babylon, some believe it is an amalgism for uh, Satan, some other people have different interpretations. Taking the interpretation out of it, comparing apples to apples, these two verses do not say the same thing. We can at least agree on that much. And... The justification for putting morning star in there is that the NIV's underlying Hebrew uses a different uh, Hebrew uh, transitive verb and pronoun to describe who this person is. However, the King James here has actually come from the Old Latin uh, because that particular part of the Hebrew text integrated a lot of the old ancient Latin writings into it. And that was how we get the word Lucifer, which is actually the two compound words, Lucis Ferris, which can mean light bringer. But one thing it does not definitely mean is morning star. Those are not the same thing. So we can understand because of the King James usage of the word Lucifer, a proper noun given to a proper person. Without a proper noun there, you do two things that are disservice to the underlying text. Number one, the underlying text describes a pronoun. So even if you were going to translate it morning star, let's just say that for a second that the NIV's translation was correct. You have a problem. That is not a title, but a description of a proper noun. In English, we give a description of a proper noun by doing two things, giving a before and a surname. If you're John Blacksmith, chances are your granddaddy was named John and he was a blacksmith. Real simple, isn't it? John Baptist. What do you think John the Baptist was? John the Baptizer. Not difficult at all. Very simple. So this is a common thing throughout Hebrew culture. And by the way, this is where it carried through. You know, you look at, at European uh, culture and how the different naming systems developed. Uh, most of us, my last name is Johnson. Well, that means I was John's son. And sure enough, my grandfather and his grandfather and his grandfather are all named John or Johnny. Uh, so very un- unique, by the way, having somebody named Johnny J. Johnson in the family. But anyway, it gives you an idea. There, there was a reason for the description. 
The same thing is true here. Without that, you lose a personal identifier of who exactly uh, Satan is or who Lucifer is or who the king of Babylon is, whoever you believe that is speaking of. You lose the only, here's the trick, the only verse in the Bible that identifies him. The only one. There's no other place in the Bible where that name is used. So if you take away something that identifies him as an individual person, now here's what you get. You spiritualize the verse. And now he's just an influence or he's a personification or he's uh, a uh, comparison, you know, like or as kind of a simile, uh, you know, those kind of things. It's just a story. So you take something that is concretely told to us in, in one Bible and now you've changed it. Now, if all things else in those verses being the same, at the very least, you fundamentally changed what the Bible says. At the very most, you've completely lied about who this person is. That creates an issue that those two things don't say the same thing. They don't. Here's another example. Revelation 22:16, as well as uh, 2:28 and 2 Peter 1:9, declare unequivocally uh, that you know Jesus Christ is the bright and morning star. Uh, and, and you look here at the, the verse I have here in yellow. It says, "I Jesus have sent my angel to testify unto you the things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, and the bright and morning star." Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's but therefore to be understood that the identification of Lucifer as being the morning star, uh, the bright and morning star, doesn't it doesn't find its roots in the Old Testament. Because no Jew was going to call Satan God. That was ignorant. Uh, or again, even if you're one of the persons who subscribe to a different view of who Lucifer is, still, they don't say the same thing. So you can't come to that same conclusion, whatever your conclusion about Isaiah 14 might be. You can't come to that conclusion based on what the NIV says or what the NKJV says, because it also removes the name in some new versions, or any of the other new versions say, because the only reference to whoever that is is gone. Well, that didn't sound right to me. That's an issue. Heaven and earth shall not pass away, but my shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Mark thirteen thirty one. You're going to see that a lot. If you got a good uh, a good memorizer, that's a great verse to memorize. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. That is a promise for God to deliver, not just under original inspiration, but to perfectly preserve and deliver to us His Word. So the question that we come down to when we talk about the Bible version quote issue. What we're coming down to is this thing that we're looking at right here. Inspiration or preservation or some combination of the both or one or the other. What is it? Everybody believes in a form of inspiration. If you've been talking about this, if you looked up any videos on this, you've seen that everybody has a qualm about exactly what inspiration means, but everybody believes in some form of it. So putting that aside for a minute, let's deal with the issue of preservation. If we're to define inspiration... As the original inspired word, holy men of God spake as they were led by the Holy Ghost, is what the scripture tells us. If we're going to use that as a definition for inspiration, then preservation going hand in hand with it must of necessity be the process by which God delivered that, took that which was delivered perfect and pinned perfect in the original and delivered it to us in such a fashion that we still have it, not just its equivalent, but it's perfection, manufactured, preserved, and delivered to us for today. If not, then we have a fundamental issue. Christianity is completely broken because God at his very base, base, base has de- defied himself, has lied, and has provided an inc- incomplete issue. Now, we can look at all kinds of scriptures. You know Psalm 12, 6, and 7? The words of the Lord are pure words. The silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. You know, thou shalt preserve them, O Lord, from this generation even forever. That is not a promise that I will preserve them until the originals die in 50 years. 
That is not a promise of preservation until, you know, Daniel dies or until Abraham dies or until Moses dies or until Paul dies. That is a promise to preserve them from this generation, which I think is a very important aortis that's listed there from this time right now that I'm saying this forever. So there should be no question about what the base of this issue is. The King James Bible supporting position, there are lots of different people that have little variations on this, but but if I can be as arrogant, if you'll allow me for just a moment to succinctly bring down everybody's argument into one thing, this is what it comes down to. We are outrageously uncouth and crazy enough to believe that our God kept his word. That's it. That's it. Now, you can get there any number of different ways, and I'm going to show you how I believe that the Lord did this, but the point is is that we are uncouth, crazy, and off our rocker enough to believe that the God of heaven and earth who created everything and did exactly what he said he was going to do delivered to us the word exactly the way he said it would, perfectly preserved, and that we believe that we have that in the authorized version. And we'll look at some reasons for that. Let's take a look at this. I told you two things that are uh, different are not the same. So I'm going to give you just a few examples. Um, I took these references on the opposing side from the 1978 NIV. However, I did look them up in the 2011, which, by the way, was the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. And funny, I think, that it was released on the 400th anniversary. Do you think there was any sales ploy or tactics being used there? Of course there were. Take a look at Colossians 1.14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Good old King James verse. Look at the NIV. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of, uh, of sin. Well, I have a problem. Um, my, my Bible tells me that almost all things are, with, are, are sanctified by blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That creates an issue. The NIV has a Jesus who has no blood. All right, let's take a look at Matthew 5.44. This is a great one. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. What's the NIV say? But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, what happened to the rest of it? By the way, if you have a, a newer NIV, because I have a couple more editions now, because they change it every 18 months to just, they can't really decide. I call it Bible schizophrenia. And what happens here is you get there and you'll now see that the last part of that verse will be included in a footnote, which will tell you oldest and best manuscripts do not include this verse. I'm going to mention this a lot as we, I'm not going to go through a whole bunch of these right now, but as we talk over the next couple of days, I'm going to mention that phrase to you a lot. It's usually written in two ways and it's usually written in the footnote of your newer Bibles. One way is oldest and best manuscripts do not include verse X or some late manuscripts include verse X. What's very interesting about this is it it relies on two things. Number one, as the reader, you must now rely that their scholarship, rather than the word of God, which is actually preserved, is accurate. So you have to put a lot of faith in the scholarship of these people in the first place. Now, while I understand, yes, translators translated the King James Bible, obviously, I would put their scholarship up against any modern Bible translator in a heartbeat, and I guarantee they would run roughshod over him. If you've ever studied the lives of even the least of these men who translated in any of the translation companies of the authorized version, you will find a huge gulf of difference between their level of education spending between 15 and an average of 25 years at the collegiate teaching level after they themselves had earned letters, which is a fancy way of saying doctorates. We would say doctorates today. They would say earning letters in a particular field of theology. And then they would be career teachers. So these are not people who were ignorant 
uh, of, of Scripture. And these were also men who believed in the final veracity of the Scripture itself, not that human influence or even their own theological biases should have any impact on the translation. A good example. Everybody pretty much knows, if you've ever studied this issue, that the Puritans and the Anglicans, or yeah, the Puritans and the Anglicans, pretty much are the parties, for the most part, who had a, a hand in the translation of the King James Bible. Well, let's take a look at it. Anglicans are essentially the Church of England. Puritans are essentially Calvinist. Yet the whole of the King James Bible, taking word for word, verse with verse, comparing Scripture with Scripture, does not actually support the overall arcing theology of either one of those churches. You know what that tells me? The translation is honest. If you or I were to translate a Bible today, chances are we would translate it with our own viewpoints in mind. And that's human nature. It's not that it's, it's not that we're doing it to be malicious, but that happens. Take a look at cult Bibles. You look at the Watchtower Society, Jehovah's Witness Bible. That's not even a translation. It's a transliteration of 53 verses to say exactly what you want it to say. I don't think anybody over there has ever read a word of Greek in the world. Uh, guys, the word for God is theos. You just give you a heads up. Um, it's very important that we understand that there's, there's a reason, and the reason isn't just we feel good about the King James. The reason is the underlying scholarship and the ideas and understanding of that point in time was much closer to God. Would anybody in this room argue that in 2018, we're now somehow as a nation closer to God than we were 50 years ago? Well, if you wouldn't argue that about 50 years ago, why would you argue that today's scholarship would produce a better Bible than the pinnacle of the Christian age and the whole Western world has been shaped by the Reformation era? Why, why would you take a period of time where God obviously had his hand on? Think about what leads up to this. We come out of the Dark Ages. The Catholic Inquisitions have stopped. God puts a king on the throne who not only is not a papist, but vehemently opposed to Catholic opposition and mingling in the text. Doesn't He's not necessarily a Protestant, but he's certainly not a Puritan. He's definitely a member of an Anglican church who puts no influence of his own on the translation of the actual text, but authorizes a translation, which is a compendium of all those viewpoints and honest to its underlying theology so that what you have is a bible that doesn't support anybody's biases but rather supports what the men who said they they believed in when they translated it themselves that we endear this i'm going to interrupt right there but i encourage you to get this offer probably the most important thing to make certain that we do not fall away and take the mark of the beast is the fact that we know our god and we know his word And if we're off reading the wrong version that has been corrupted, how can we stand? Brothers and sisters, we've got to stand. And that is why it's important to have the King James Version and have enough information to where you can convince others to turn away from things that are corrupted. That's the reason I recommend you get the King James gift offer. It's four titles, six discs, valued at $130 for a gift of just $35. That's right. Four titles, six discs, valued at $130 for a gift of $35 at prophecyclub.com. The King James gift offer, $35 at prophecyclub.com. Make certain you can give an answer when someone comes asking you questions about what Bible October 4, 5, and 6, it's the Understanding End Times Conference, Living Word Fellowship, Evansville, Indiana. Friday evening, 6.30, I'll speak on my seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials chart. Saturday morning, 10 a.m., I'll speak on my Feast and Revelation Prophecies chart. Saturday evening, 5 p.m., Leslie will speak on the Kundalini Spirit. Sunday morning at 10 a.m., 
I'll take half the time with Miss the Mark, my new book, and Leslie will take the rest of it. As you know, I'm called to build an end-time army of prophecy teachers working miracles. I want you to come so I can lay hands on you and anoint you for you to receive two anointings. The spirit of revelation as I received it when I memorized the book of Revelation. Two, to work in sevenfold miracles when the judgment arrives. The room only holds 350 people and the church is probably going to take from 100 to 150 of them. So it will fill quickly. I suggest you do the $25 registration quickly at endtimesconference.com. $25 registration at endtimesconference.com, October 4, 5, and 6, Understanding End Times Conference, Living Word Fellowship, Evansville, Indiana. See you there! In 2017, I memorized the book of Revelation. God showed me a single word, first fruits, is a secret door found in Revelation and Leviticus. When linked together, the end time events can be placed in chronological order. For the first time, we can know what feast Jesus returns on, the feast for the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne, and the feast upon which the wheat is resurrected, and on the day the New Jerusalem comes down to earth. And even though I've been in Bible prophecy for 40 years, I freely admit to you that I knew nothing that is revealed in this book supernaturally. So you probably know nothing that is in this book. One prophetic word said, There is a lock that I have put over a word in the book of Revelation that I'm going to open unto you. It will turn many books written on the end time message into obsolete books. That's this book. Don't get one for $20. Instead, get five for 30 or 10 for 55 Or a new case price, 60 books for $250. That's 60 books in a case for $250. The Secret Door to Understand Bible Prophecy at prophecyclub.com. You can now watch 160 Prophecy Club recordings and soon over 300 without interruption. Most people would agree 300 titles, normally $30 each, a gift of $100 a month would be reasonable, $50 a pretty good deal, but the introductory rate for a limited time is just $20 recurring monthly subscription. A one-year subscription is a gift of $200. There's no contract. You can cancel any time you want to, and you get the first three days free just to check it out. The best deal is a yearly subscription that'll lock in your rate for a year even when we raise the rates. WatchProphecyClub.com. Go check it out. WatchProphecyClub.com. 